My mother always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. She told me I had a purpose. Suicide Squadcast. This is the DC Universe podcast where we discuss the DC Extended Universe movies and TV shows. We're all big fans of what DC Comics is doing on the big and small screens, so we want to make sure we talk all about it. Thanks for joining me tonight. I'm Scott, and I guess tonight I am the Suicide Squadcast. Yes, it is another solo show. You know how Tim gets busy with his with his stuff, the project that he has been griping and moaning about for like the last two and a half years. It is finally seeing the light of day. So there's going to be some funkiness going forward because he is going to be swamped moving forward. And I'm having to record this week because he was out of town. I think the day I'm recording, he just got home and he's leaving the next day. So bear with us as we are going to do a little, there might be some solo shows here. There might be some host shuffle there, but you know, we're just kind of living. It's a post Joker world and we're just living in it. So, but thank you for joining us today. Uh, Just as as a reminder, we are members of the Suicide Squadcast Network. That does include DC Comic Squadcast with Chris and Jordan, Fans Without Borders with Brent and Ray, and DC TV Squadcast with the Clown Car of Squadcast hosts, which currently includes Jordan talking with Ray about Titans and Ray kind of doing a weekly recap of the DCCW shows. I do know that probably in about a week or two, Tim and I will be making regular appearances as we will join Ray to talk about about the upcoming HBO series Watchmen. So make sure you tune in for that. And we've also gotten some listener questions regarding our thoughts on shows like Pennyworth. And just a reminder that for all 10 episodes of Pennyworth, you can go back to DC TV Squadcast and listen to Tim and Ray give their opinions on every episode of the show. So don't forget to head on over there if you want to listen to those discussions. And of course, I want to take this opportunity to thank all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash squadcastmedia for their generous financial support of this network, helping us pay those bills, keeping this show running. We want to thank you guys so much. We hope you enjoy the additional content that we provide. I do know that there is... We just recorded last night. Ray and I recorded our Fans Without Borders Plus review of Gemini Man, starring Will Smith, directed by Ang Lee. So you can be looking forward to that in your feeds in the near future. And I do believe that this Tuesday, it is scheduled that several hosts will be talking about about Guillermo del Toro's 2004 Hellboy for Squadcast movies. So if you hopefully you've been enjoying the Punisher review that just came out and you have 2004's Hellboy to listen to. And of course, you can always go back to Fans Without Borders Plus and listen to Ray and I talk about the 2019 reboot of Hellboy that came out this year. So that's our just our small little way of saying thank you for your support of the network. And remember, it's the $5 a month tier that gets you access to all of that additional content. Okay, so Getting into the news this week, because, you know, like I kind of hinted to in the intro, it's a post-Joker world, and that's kind of what we're talking about for uh, a little bit of today's episode. I do want to direct your attention, and I want to thank several uh, listeners who sent us a clip 
to this variety video, I believe Ali Salvor Harden was the first one that, you know, sent it our way. And I know several of you made sure that if he hadn't sent it, that we got a hold of it. But there's a great video of Todd Phillips breaking down the opening scene of the movie. It's If this is any kind of indication of what I'm hoping to hear in a director's commentary when Joker comes out, which, by the way, you can already pre-order the 4K Blu-ray Steelbook on Best Buy, because you better believe you know that I'm already there. Mine's been pre-ordered. I, it's December, actually, when it's already coming out on home video. I am hoping that there is some sort of director's commentary included with the film, because this, to me personally, is one of those films that, that director's commentary is like, it, you're just begging for it. But if you want to kind of get a small glimpse about what director's commentary might look like for a film like this, I really suggest you go and seek out this this video where he breaks down the opening scene where Arthur gets attacked by you know the kids and also that first scene at Ha Ha's. So go and check that out if you are interested. There was a interesting uh, audience breakdown that Hollywood Reporter published. Uh, they kind of I really am curious how they come up with these numbers, but just. You know, I guess polling, you know, so, you know, you, you get a sample size and then they kind of extrapolate from there. But according to Hollywood Reporter, only 8% of ticket buyers for Joker were between the ages of 13 and 17. Well, no kidding. It's an R-rated movie, you know, according to Post Tracks exit polling. Uh, oh, stats aren't available for those 12 and under. It's an R-rated movie. No kidding. Okay, moving on from that point. Uh, overall, males made up 62% of the audience. Not terribly surprising, considering that it's a comic book-based property. They It tends to skew male. But Joker did play to an ethnically diverse crowd, with 44% of ticket buyers being Caucasian, 24% Hispanic, 16% African American, and 14% Asian and or other. A majority of the audience, 65%, was between the ages of 18 and 34. Once again, kind of landing in that typical, you know, people who would go see a, quote, comic book movie. But so just a little information to throw up there. I remember we had these kind of conversations, especially with the numbers of Suicide Squad when that came out and the the very, you know, the, the, the more diverse percentages that were coming out with that movie. It's just interesting that Joker apparently landed on that. Uh, there was some other, there, there was a lot of stuff out there that if you want to seek out, I guess you can you can go watch it if you want. There's that outtake clip from Jimmy Kimmel that has been confirmed to have been a prank. Apparently it involved uh, Joaquin Phoenix yelling at a crew member, I think during the bathroom scene, and it has been confirmed to be a prank. So I saw some people getting their, getting their feathers ruffled about, I guess, that interview and that clip being shown. And it, it, it was it was all part of the joke. It was it was all part of the marketing. So I guess people can kind of you know tap their outrage out about that. It was, it was part of the joke. Uh, you know, for for those of you who care, it has been certified fresh again. It I don't know what this was about. How it was certified fresh, and then Rotten Tomatoes took the certification away, and then they reinstated it. This is why I don't give a hooting and a holler about this Rotten Tomato stuff. 
because of nonsense like this. But apparently, as of October 4th, it's got its certified fresh again, if that matters to you. Uh, apparently, uh, S- Cinema Score, you know, once again, that apparently it is, you know, a, how audiences judge a movie, I guess, out of enjoyment or whatever. I, I, we talked about this years ago when we used to pay a little bit more attention to this kind of stuff. And frankly, I've stopped really caring about it. But for those who might care, um, Joker did get a B plus cinema score, you know, and that's kind of judging audience reactions. So there you go with that. I have seen this interview with Joaquin Phoenix that has raised people's questions about whether there would ever be a sequel to Joker. Of course, at, at anyone who's asked me the question or followed me and you know or listened to some comments we've made previously on this show, you're aware that I don't want this thing to have a sequel whatsoever. I want this to be a nice standalone. Let this be its thing. Do not feel like that this has to be franchised because it, it then diminishes the specialness of what this is to me personally. I mean, can you ever complain about seeing more of Joaquin Phoenix? Obviously not, but I still feel like this movie needs to exist as its own thing. And listening to Joaquin Phoenix in the interview, I get the sense it's more like he enjoyed making this movie and he definitely would not shy away from the opportunity to work with Todd Phillips as a director again. So I don't know. I I really don't take much stock in what was said in those comments. I know a lot of people are looking at box office, and we'll talk about that. And we, I will talk about that in a brief second about the money this movie's raking in. But I, I, all I can say on a personal, uh, a, a personal commentary is that I just, I just want this movie to be left alone. Let this be a movie. Let this be a film. Don't turn this into another franchise. Just let it be its thing and let it go. So that's just where I stand on this. Of course, I, Tim can chime in. I think Tim, I think Tim kind of pretty much agrees with me. But he can chime in later, probably on next week's episode, if he's here, because next week is going to be a weird one, too, for him. All right. So there has been a lot of interviews uh, with, uh, I think this one mainly I've been seeing where Todd Phillips had an interview with the Los Angeles Times. And this is where discuss, where directors who go and talk about their films after they've come out, this is where it gets kind of, you know, kind of you know fuzzy for me. Because it's like, oh, especially with a movie like Joker, when if you listen to our review. Tim and I loved asking the questions and debating the answers. And if you've listened to us for any period of time, you know that these are the kind of films that we really love. We love films that don't give us all the answers. Because if you give us all the answers, then there's nothing to discuss afterwards. And this film definitely gives you a lot to discuss, we think. And so, if you remember in our review, and spoilers for Joker, I mean, at this point, seriously, you're listening to the show and you haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry, skip ahead a few minutes because some spoiler talk is coming up due to these interviews that have been that Todd Phillips has been having. There has been that great discussion of how much of this movie was a delusion, how much of this movie was an hallucination, how much of this movie is real, how much of this really happened, and how much of this is the is Arthur's psychosis. And it all kind of comes down to that last scene that really makes you start to question it. And I've seen the movie a second time. I know Tim has seen it at least three times at this point. I went a second time with a friend who was seeing it for his first time, and we walked out having this very discussion. So in an interview with the Los Angeles Times, when Todd Phillips was asked about how much of it was real or how much it was fake, here was the quote that he gave uh, to the Times. Quote, When Scott Silver and I sat down to write it, we knew enough about the comics. 
I read comics when I was a kid. We knew he didn't have an origin story. We also, I don't want to say whether it's real or not, because I think part of the fun, I've shown it to many, many different people, and they all have a different reaction. Some of them say, oh, I get it. I mean, the last line of the movie, you wouldn't get it to a joke he was telling. Well, is the joke the movie? Is the joke the thing? Or is it the thing about the the ideas you don't like the answers to those questions because it's nice to see the different things people take away from it? And so Todd Phillips is basically saying, I'm not going to tell you because he wants this discussion to continue and I'm glad when I saw the headline when I saw the clickbait and I was just like please don't don't actually tell me the answer I don't want a definitive answer the fun of the movie is not knowing or debating or watching for clues in the movie and thankfully Todd Phillips said yeah that's the fun part we wrote we, we wrote it this way which you know made me one happy that it was a very intentional decision and that he's not going to jump up and try to explain it I I I'm like, yes, yes, keep keep the questions going. Also related to that last scene was the Joker laugh that Arthur has at the end of the movie. And in the Los Angeles Times, Todd Phillips also explained that that laugh in that scene is the only time he laughs genuinely. You know, it's not part of his condition. It's not him faking something to... It's not him faking something to feel like he needs to belong. That laugh at the end of the movie is his one and only genuine, I really do find this funny. This, I have, I, he has become the Joker by the end of the movie. And he finds this, you know, this is him genuinely laughing in a way that, he, you know, he he has become who he is. Because Todd Phelps goes on to explain, there are different laughs in the movie. There's the laugh from Arthur's Affliction, and then there's his fake laugh when he's trying to be, quote, one of those people, which is my favorite laugh. But at the end, when he's in the room at Arkham State Hospital, that's his only genuine laugh in the movie. Now, I found this also interesting because Todd Phillips is confirming at least some reality in the world we saw, which is, as far as Todd Phillips is concerned, yes, the white room he's in at the end of the movie is Arkham. So I I found that just as a little bit of an interesting tidbit. There's also finishing up the spoiler talk and then, then, you know, if you're still listening to this, hopefully you've seen the movie and if you haven't, this is another warning to skip ahead a couple of more minutes. But there was an interview with Brett Cullen, who of course plays Thomas Wayne in the movie. And this was another thing that Tim and I were debating in the review was, is Thomas really author's father? Did Thomas and Penny Fleck really have a relationship? How much was Penny, how much of that was Penny psychosis, and how much of it was real? Well, apparently, at least we we, we might get some insight from the actor. Uh, and once again, this is what an actor's saying, so you can take it or leave it, or take it with a grain of salt, or whatever it is you want to say. But when Brett Cullen was being interviewed by the Hollywood Reporter, this is what his response to the question about whether Thomas Wayne really was Arthur's father or not. And Cullen said, "Quote: The backstory was that." Arthur's mother had worked for Thomas in his home, and she was a beautiful woman who Thomas was attracted to, and it led to a physical relationship, Cullen explained about his conversations with director Todd Phillips. Later in life, she's in and out of mental institutions, and in my mind, and that's Brett Cullen, so basically as he was playing the actor, Thomas Wayne was the one who put Penny Fleck into those mental institutions. Now, of course, whether that was justified because she really did have mental 
issues or not. Once again, questions upon questions upon questions. But I just think it's interesting that at least according to Brett Cullen, the direct the conversations he had with the director, they're at least confirming that there had been a physical relationship between Thomas and Penny at some point. So I think that's also rather intriguing too. It, it gives you something else to go back and kind of look at the film in that way. So just once again, another reason to go back and watch the film and just see where all this lays down. All right, here is the obligatory portion of the podcast when after a movie comes out, we give you box office updates. We talk about money, we talk about, and at this point, we actually can go into at least almost we got confirmed numbers for the first weekend, and we've got estimates so far for the second weekend. So, Joker opened last Friday, earning $39.8 million. I think that always includes the Thursday night preview money, which makes it the biggest October opening weekend ever, uh, at a total of $93.5 million for the weekend. That's in comparison to the $80 million that Venom made this time last year as the previous October record holder. It marks Warner Brothers' third biggest opening weekend. Uh, you know, Wonder Woman held, had it, the biggest... Biggest opening weekend with 103 million back in June of 2017. With 93.5, that means that Joker came within $300,000 of Justice League's $93.8 million opening weekend in November of 2017, which is also incredible to me that an R rated character piece was only $300,000 shy of, you know, what should have been a massive opening weekend big team-up movie. That's a, you know, I just think that's really incredible. So let's go into those numbers a little bit more. Uh, so like we said, so as for opening weekend, 93.5 million, biggest October opening ever. As a matter of fact, it is the fourth largest opening weekend of all time for an R-rated movie, only behind It Chapter One and both Deadpool films. So that's a, and it was number one at the box office for its opening weekend. It debuted to an estimated 140.5 million in the international markets, which gave it a global total of 234 million. It's opening weekend, which estimates put that at about quadrupling its production budget just in its opening weekend. It passed 100 million domestically after pulling in almost 10 million, like 9.72 million on Monday, giving it a four-day total of $105.9 million. And then it goes rolling into its second weekend, grossing another $17 million on its second Friday domestically. And if estimates hold... Now, once again, these are all estimates. Uh, Warner Brothers could be seeing, you know, they're estimating a possible extra $60 million for its second weekend, which would be just a 37% drop from opening weekend to second weekend. Now, that's above earlier predictions for its second weekend, where they thought it was going to land more in like the $50 million range, which means that the overall domestic total could be looking at over north of a hundred and eighty five million by the end of the second weekend, which still puts Joker number one at the box office for its second week in a row, still out grossing the new Adams Family animated movie and uh, Gemini Man. And then with all the other news that is going on with Joker, you know, you've got actors reacting to the film and giving their support. You've got 
clickbaity type articles where the, the different publications are talking to selected groups of Academy voters talking about Oscar chances or not Oscar chances. I feel like that's neither here nor there right now because it's still, I feel like it's just still just a whole bunch of noise out there. And I really don't want to dive into that. But, you know, we'll know come, you know, January. I mean, that's when, January, February, that's when we'll know what's going on, at least with nominations and all that kind of stuff. So we'll just we'll just be playing the wait and see right now when it comes to what kind of Oscar talk this movie may be getting. Moving on to Birds of Prey and the Phantom's Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Uh, little brief news. Uh, we've got... Well, we could have talked about this last week when we did our trailer review, but I think I'll take the opportunity right now to announce for anyone who may have missed it that Daniel Pemberton has been announced as the film composer for Birds of Prey. If you're not familiar with him by name, he was responsible for the score to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Steve Jobs, The Man from Uncle, and Ocean's 8. I at least own the score to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and I do need to go back and probably do a rewatch of Man from Uncle and Ocean's 8 just to kind of hear, well, just kind of hear a variety of style because those are all very different movies. So, but if you're in that sort of film score kind of crowd and you're interested, that's that's who you've got coming. So you might want to go check out some of his previous work. Uh, there was an interview that Ewan McGregor did with the French magazine Premiere, and I just wanted to read this little snippet from the interview that I think, you know, is very telling and I th- and contextualizes some things that you could generally infer from that that first full Birds of Prey trailer we got. But here's what Hugh McGregor had to say. What interested me with Birds of Prey is that it's a feminist film. It is very finely written. It is in the script a true look on the misogyny. And I think we, the men, need that. We need to be more aware of how we behave with the opposite sex. We need to be taught to change. The misogynists in the movie are often extreme. They are raping. They beat women. And it's legitimate to represent people like that because they exist and they are obviously the worst. But in the dialogues of Birds of Prey, there is always an allusion to everyday misogyny, to those things that we say as a man we do not even realize, to mansplaining. All this is in the script in a very subtle way. I found that brilliant. So um, I I really feel like you get that in the trailer. So I'm not terribly surprised. So I'll be very interested to see, you know, how this turns out. I mean, we got February. It's the it's the next movie we got coming up. And then also, if you're kind of interested in a more close-up look at the costumes that have been revealed so far, they were on display on dummies at uh, New York Comic Con, and you can, you can, of course, go and seek those out. The cast was at New York Comic Con doing signings. There was a, oh, there was such a precious video of Margot Robbie reacting so effervescently to a cosplayer doing the Birds of Prey, Harley Quinn caution tape cosplay at the autograph line at New York Comic Con. If you just kind of want something that's going to warm your heart a little bit, I would suggest you go and seek out that video. Not really much to say about the Suicide Squad right now, only because uh, basically filming has begun officially. There are really awful looking set pics being released right now. And by awful, I'm not commenting on the fact that it shows a whole bunch of people in costumes. I'm talking about the quality of the photographs themselves. I'm not going to get into any kind of debate about the costumes or opinions about that because 
their set photos and they're bad looking set photos. And I'm just it's it's another one of those that, you know, wait and see what it looks like, you know, at least on film. Could be in a trailer or preview clips or anything like that. I'm I'm not gonna make I'm not gonna make any rush judgments right now. You know, you get everyone who has their wide spectrum of opinions when it comes to that. And guess what? You're all gonna have your opinions. I'm gonna have my opinion. I'm just not gonna be talking about it right now, especially on a solo show when I've got no one to bounce off of. So that is all I'm gonna say about that. Oh, by the way, there was a picture of I am gonna say this because there was a I think an Instagram photo or tweet photo of people. Peter Capaldi on set, and as a Whovian, that just made that just warmed my little heart. So I will mention that it's like, yay! I saw Peter Capaldi. There was a interesting comment that Gail Simone tweeted out about Batgirl. You know, there's been a lot of hubbub about the fact that Barbara Gordon slash Oracle slash Batgirl is not being included, as so far as we can tell, in uh, the Birds of Prey movie. And uh, a, a fan apparently mentioned their disappointment that Barbara wasn't featured in Birds of Prey. And Gail Simone reacted by saying, I am a little bummed about Barbara, but she is getting a lot in all caps, of love coming soon in other DC movies. So, so even, and there's been, there's been other comments that Gail Simone, who of course is very widely known for her stint on both the post Chuck Dixon Birds of Prey series and for the original New 52 run of Batgirl. And there's been talk of Gail Simone being in Hollywood, supposedly having talks. So there is some thought that she is maybe consulting on a future, either future Batgirl script or at least projects that may involve Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl. So it just sounds like another one of those Gail Simone knows things and she's just telling fans of Barbara to, you know, don't worry, it's coming. Talking about, you know, everyone kind of, you know, having a little bit of patience and maybe just kind of like, ah, just settle down a little bit. I do want to draw your attention. If you have not seen this, David Sandberg, director of Shazam, did a hilarious animated video explaining the truth behind test screenings, how they work, how much you can take, you know, the, the different kinds of test screenings, why test screenings happen. I know that Tim and I have had lots of discussions about fan screenings and test screenings and all of that in the past. I do know that several listeners drew our attention to this video, and I once again want to thank everyone who did so because I had a grand old time watching this animated video, and I think it's very instru- I think it's very educational, and I think it's very important for some people who jump on every little thing to go and watch this video and educate yourself on what test screenings are, how they work, what they mean, what they don't mean. Just do yourself a favor, go inform yourselves, check out this video. And- and you'll be entertained along the way. And then, of course, last weekend, while well, Joker's going on and New York Comic Con's coming on, and you know there was that release the Snyder Cut billboard being displayed quite prominently in Times Square at, during the weekend of New York Comic Con. We get this release from Zack Snyder on Vero of storyboards, another one of those storyboard reveals that shows that Martha Lois coffee scene that did not ever make it into the theatrical cut of Justice League, but that we had seen photos of, you know, leading, you know, that obviously exists in the Snyder Cut. And the fact that one of the characters, you know, we assume it's Mar- the Martha shapeshifts, and it turns out that the woman actually, the, the person actually talking to Lois during that scene was Martian Manhunter. Yes, Martian Manhunter was flipping going to be in the Snyder Cut of Justice League. And not only that, uh, in a follow-up 
post on Vero, it was revealed that the character of Sanwick, that the character of Calvin Swanwick was actually Martian Manhunter. Now, of course, that does at least to wonder how much of the time that we've seen Swanwick between Man of Steel and BVS was actually Martian Manhunter, John Jones. I don't know, but it's just, it was a, it was a long-going fan theory that Swanwick was supposed to be John Jones, and this confirms that fan theory. Yeah, this Vero post from Zach also unfortunately confirms more you know, information about what was and was not finished about the Snyder Cut before he left the project. He, he suggests that he was able to shoot all of that scene, probably did some pre, you know, maybe did some special effects work on Martian Manhunter, except for the shot where Martian Manhunter turns back into Swanwick. He revealed in this post that he was able to shoot everything but this part that would have involved Harry Lennox, the actor who played Calvin Swanwick, and that that had originally been Snyder's intention to do that when he got back from L.A. from the London shoot. So just more clues of A, what's missing, and B, what if the if the Snyder Cut was to ever be finished and released, just more details about what needs to be finished. There was also a, uh, a follow-up post from Zack Snyder thanking the fans for both the, the, the Times Square billboard and later this week he also, there was an article published by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention uh, highlighting all the charitable contributions that the Zack Snyder fans have made in to and in honor of AFSP and he shared that out as well. It's a, it's a nice article. I, I, I read some, I didn't get to read all of it, but I read some of it. You should go check it out. It's just, it's just kind of nice how AFSP acknowledges how much attention and financial contributions and time that has been brought to them thanks to Zack Snyder fans and, you know, those of us who hope to one day see the Snyder Cut of Justice League. And here at the end, just a little bit of just really brief television news just to kind of wrap up this little solo show. Because uh, I have finished Pennyworth. I, it was nice. Unfortunately, I did have to end up spending, you know, at least five ninety nine because I didn't finish watching all 10 episodes before my seven-day free trial ran out. But I have seen all 10 episodes of Pennyworth now. I did find it interesting that Bruno Heller did come out to explain a little bit about the whole Raven Society versus the No Name League because if you watch Pennyworth it is so obviously a comic book alternate reality timeline version of events because the 60s England we're looking at is not the real 60s England from our world and Bruno Heller basically said this is where his head was when it came to the Raven Society the No Name League and this version of England that we see in Pennyworth He said, quote, they're the previously unwritten prequel to V for Vendetta. If you're looking at the DC mythology of England, that's the one text we have if you're going to get canonical, which is kind of funny considering that V for Vendetta is a Vertigo book and not canonical to the DC universe. But okay, Bruno. Whatever. England in 30 years from the story we're telling is going to be a dystopian world that this world we're seeing now transforms into. So the two sides of the Civil War are a way of explaining that. Okay. Interesting. Doesn't really make a lot of sense because Batman doesn't exist in V for Vendetta, but you go ahead. I think it would make more sense if he had talked about it being an inspiration for where they're putting England in Pennyworth. But yeah. You go and do that, Bruno. That was a weird show. Bruno Hella, it's just going to be it's just going to be interesting. There was an interesting uh, uh, Fortune article talking about the Watchmen series on HBO. Once again, continuing talking about how the 
how the the show is going to be an extrapolation of the source material because once again they're not adapting it then they're, they're telling okay what happens afterwards and Damon Lindelof went on to say I have such reverence for the original material and the idea of just kind of doing that again was not something that I necessarily wanted to see as a fan I just asked myself what happened 30 years later what happened to Adrian Vi- Adrian Veidt after he saved the world and uh, Dave Gibbons was the one who came out and said uh, it's an extrapolation because Gibbons didn't went on to say, you end up a million miles away from the circumstances of the graphic novel, but still with extreme fidelity to it. There isn't anything in this that contradicts the graphic novel, and so to me it is an application of it rather than a dilution. There's also some interesting interviews with Jeremy Irons where apparently Lindelof was enthusiastically pitching the story to Jeremy Irons, to which Irons responded, he understood quote, about 10% of what Lindelof was saying, and he was talking about this graphic novel, comic book world, of which I knew nothing about because I live in England and I'm over 45. Somehow that whole world had passed me by. Lindelof also maintained that the story of the first season will be resolved by the end of the first season and that future seasons, while possible, would not be mandatory. So basically, you you know, they're, they're writing this to where it will be a one, uh, the first season will be able to stand alone and that you would not need future seasons to to make the story. Like Basically, they're not going to live this on a cliffhanger apparently. Lindelof said, we plotted out these nine episodes so we knew exactly where we were headed and that every mystery every question that we were asking would be resolved (laughs) i like this he said if the conversation that surrounds the show seems to suggest that you're hungry for more we'll certainly take that into consideration lindelof also said our version of watchmen if it becomes a gateway drug for them to go buy the original 12 issues that are now packaged as a graphic novel and read it it is one of the greatest things ever written and illustrated in my humble opinion once again lindelof suggesting that it is not going to be required for viewers of the series to have read Watchmen to be able to watch the show, but that he's hoping that the show, as oftentimes with adaptations or inspirations, will drive people to go and check out the original source material. And lastly, we had a little DC Universe update going on from New York Comic Con. DC Universe announced that they're, they have a new anthology series that's going to debut in 2020 called Bizarro TV. It's being described as a mixed media series that will draw on obscure characters and deep cuts such as Space Cabby, Ambush Bug, Slam Brady, and The Creeper. The project will be produced by Blue Ribbon Content, who I'm familiar with because they did the Vixen series and the Ray series and the John Constantine uh, City of Demons series for the CW Seed. And because Blue Ribbon Content is Warner Brother Television Group's digital production unit. Uh, the statement from DC said it will be, quote, a showcase of experimental styles and creative voices and visions that will be a mix of live action and animation. The article I was reading from comicbook.com suggested that the series seems to bear resemblance to Bizarro Comics, which was an anthology from 2002 that won an Eisner and a Harvey Award. The series will be short form, uh, similar to the short, the DC shorts that appear on the home releases of the DC see universe animated movies and guys that's going to be it for this week uh, thank you so much for listening to you know this extended solo show with me i really appreciate it of course we all love to hear from you you can contact the show at suicide Squadcast on twitter i can be contacted at scott dc 27 if you want to share any thoughts with tim even though he probably hasn't even read any of this any of these show notes you can reach out to him at alan fire and of course you can always email us at suicide at gmail.com 
We have loved the interactions that have been coming our way after our Joker review. I will admit it's kind of nice to hear from you guys again. It's been a little quiet, and it, it's nice to know that we've got a movie like Joker to get you guys interested enough to want to hear what you have to say. Of course, we can also be found on Vero, Facebook, and at our website, SuicideSquadcast.com, where you can find the entire network of shows. And just a reminder that if you can if you can find it in your heart and in your wallet to support us, you can head on over to Patreon.com squadcastmedia where $5 a month does get you that bonus feed of content. So guys, that's going to be it for this week. And as we always remind our listeners, go out and keep reading DC. So yeah, so another solo show, all by myself, all by myself. And who do we have to blame for that? We've got Tim to blame for that. I mean, he's got to be out there, you know, working and being an adult and supporting his family. I mean, seriously, I've got a, I have a sick three-year-old right now, but I'm here. I don't care if my son has 101 fever. I'm here doing a podcast for you. I don't care if Tim has had no sleep in who knows how many hours and he's only got one day with his family before he has to go back out to work. I am here for you. So Tim, this one's for you.